This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hope your Wednesday is going well so far and you will definitely want to stick around for the whole hour today. I know you do usually anyway, but especially if you're interested in animals and modern technology, you're going to be intrigued to learn about this new business. It is Western Australia's first embryo export facility and it's just been accredited and one Jinjin stud manager is very happy about it. And we're just really lucky that BossVet has actually set up this facility because it's the only one in Western Australia. And, yeah, we're one of the first clients to be able to send exportable embryos out of Australia. So we never thought we'd come this far, but it's definitely been a lot of hard work to get here. So what is happening? They're using technology that means the mum and the dad and the calf never actually meet. Shortly, after half past 12, you'll get a chance to step inside the lab to learn more about how it works. This is the Country Hour on ABC WA 6 past 12. Also today, you're going to spend a little bit of time uh, going around some farms in Carnarvon just to check on how the farmers are going in terms of finding enough workers to get all the jobs done the ABC's rural reporter James Liveris has been spending some time in this part of Western Australia and you'll hear from him shortly. First up, though, talking about the wine industry because Australia's wine exports have bounced back in the last three months to September, more than making up for the decrease seen in the first half of the year caused by the COVID disruptions. The value of exports has reached almost $3 billion, not far off the highest level recorded, which was in 2007. That is a 23% increase on this time last year. Wine Australia CEO Andreas Clark says the figures reveal there is a lot of love for the local product. It, it tells an ongoing and strong story for global demand for Australian wine. So the key facts are we're growing in all our top five export markets, overall a 4% increase in value. And we're now nudging just under $3 billion. So it's $2.998 billion. And to put that in a bit of context, uh, back in 2007, we just nudged over $3 billion. That's obviously in 2007 dollar terms. So we're, we're getting back to that, that high point, obviously 13 years later. So... Overall, uh, it just shows the strong platform of growth and the overall demand and appreciation for Australian wine in a whole range of critical markets overseas. Were you expecting such a turnaround so quickly? Oh, look, it's been a year like no other, as uh, many other people can attest. So, again, put in a bit of context, we've had steady ongoing growth for a number of years now. Clearly, uh, we hit some headwinds in the early part of this calendar year, as many have off the back of the pandemic in particular. So, yes, we did um, slip back into some negative growth, but we have bounced back strongly in the last quarter in a whole host of markets. China has um, enjoyed some growth. Markets like the UK in particular have enjoyed really solid growth of uh, 18% for the 12 months with a particularly strong rise in the last quarter 
in the order of 49%. So that is really strong growth. Obviously, you can't sustain those growth levels and there's various factors at play. But overall, it does place us in a good position to continue the upwards trajectory that we have enjoyed for a number of years. What effect do you think the possibility of a tariff on Australian wine into China could be playing into these results into China as well? Look, it's important just to take it one step at a time with the anti-dumping and countervailing duties investigations in China. The key message is we're cooperating fully with those investigations, the named companies and also from an industry perspective. So it really is one step at a time. There is a lot of speculation, as you would expect, that's happening at the moment as to what may happen and the impacts on export flows, etc. But it really is too early to make any judgment or draw any conclusions. As I said, we're working with the authorities. We're providing all the information that's needed to inform their deliberations. And we need to back ourselves in. We think we've got a very strong position and uh, we need to see where those investigations land in due course. Do you think, though, that it could be driving a bit of increased interest from Chinese consumers to get in before potentially a tariff is applied? Look, I think the important thing to understand is we've enjoyed really strong growth in China over many years, and that's built off really outstanding work building a engagement with the Chinese consumer. There's strong demand and interest in Australian wine in China from their consumers, and that's what's continuing to play through here. Obviously, there was a, a bit of a bump early in the year when, when COVID hit in China in terms of restaurants, etc., being closed. They have now swung into uh, being open for business, and that's flowed through, as you would expect, to demand and, and interest um, in, in reordering for Australian wine. So that's what we're seeing come through at the moment. The United Kingdom has seen the largest increase in value. It's up 18% uh, to $430 million. What do you put that down to? Look, there's a few factors at play. Um, Firstly, we've got to understand in the UK, we've been number one in the retail setting there for over 20 years. So we're particularly strong in the supermarket chains. And as we know with COVID, retail remains open. People are obviously still purchasing through those channels on-premise restaurants, etc., have had to shut down, and that's been challenging for many who are um, through that channel. So given our strong footing into the retail sector, that has really held us in good stead. And people, uh, you know, UK drinkers have always loved Australian wine, and uh, they're now obviously increasing their purchasing through that channel. There's another factor at play here as well. Obviously, the Brexit is looming in terms of the... Uh, of the, of the deadline um, uh, taking place, uh, obviously, early next year. And so there's an element of making sure the supply chain is fully stocked to manage any uh, any issues associated with, with Brexit. So, uh, yeah, we think that's a factor at play that's driving, obviously, uh, a 49% growth in the last quarter. You know, we're not going to sustain those growth levels, but we uh, are pretty confident about... Uh, ongoing positioning um, in the UK market. One Australia CEO, Andreas Clark with Cassie Huff. 12 past 12. Australian wines aren't only doing well in export markets, they're also doing really well on the domestic front. A prominent WA winemaker says sales into the WA market 
are up by as much as 25%. Ferngrove Wines is based at Franklin River, about an hour and a half north of Albany in the Great Southern. Managing Director Andrew Blythe says you're drinking local wines like never before and you're also keen to experiment a little and try some new and different varieties. We're seeing a, a nice increase in domestic sales of wines, more so in, in Western Australia than we are obviously on the East Coast, obviously because in, in WA we can control it more. But we are certainly seeing a, a nice little increase in sales in, in areas uh, like direct-to-consumer. We're seeing a nice little increase there. Retail sales are up between 20-25% and restaurants also, although they were the, the first to get impacted as part of COVID, but they're actually bouncing back really nicely at the moment. Now, you're obviously not run-of-the-mill wine. You target sort of a, a more premium end of the scale. Do you think that that is part of what's driving that that particular 20 to 25% increase in retail sales? Is it across the board or is it mainly at that higher end? No, look, we, we're seeing it at, at all levels. I think we're seeing it at, I guess, entry-level prices and that is for certainly for people that are looking for more bang for their buck but what we're seeing is more in that premium part that you're talking about and, and also around varietals I guess that we we wouldn't normally sell a lot of varieties like Malbec people seem to be experimenting a lot more but yeah no certainly that mid-priced wine premium price is the growth area for us and why are we do you think that we're seeing this this change in in varieties or fa- a favored grapes well look i i think just it's it's driven by four you know what we're seeing is as four kind of factors that, that is driving this increase and one is what we're certainly seeing is we're seeing a wa consumer with a nice sense of what i call local patriotism and that is you know, they're supporting their, their local WA producers. And I think all producers in WA are probably saying that, that being, I guess, a parochial state, Western Australia, but we're seeing a lot of consumers supporting WA producers. Secondly, I think, you know, we're seeing increase because of generally people have excess money in their pockets, given they're not going away on holidays. So what we're certainly seeing is people going out there and I guess rewarding themselves or making themselves feel good and I guess spending spending money in restaurants and so forth. And with that also, I guess the third part of that is is enjoying, I think WA consumers are enjoying the freedom of dining out without having restrictions. So I think people are enjoying enjoying that part of it. And I think the fourth thing that we've, we've certainly seen and I guess driving some of these sales is that people actually enjoying the privacy of their own home watching things like football. They're not going out to stadiums. So this, this retail sales are driven by a lot of at-home consumption, certainly around watching you know, things like the football or TV. So... What about on the international front? I mean, there's reporting this week that there's been a surge of buy-ups out of China before these tariffs come in. I mean, is that something that you have seen or is that a bit of a beat-up? I think it's a little bit of a beat-up. We haven't seen any change in, I guess, or or surge in sales. It it, it certainly might be the case on the East Coast and some of the regions like Southeastern Australia, but we're not seeing any any surge or any increase. And to be honest, it's it's fairly normal at the moment. Normally buying happens certainly leading up to around September, October, November. But we, again, we're just seeing normalised sales at the moment. Are you surprised that sales are at that normal level, given that there is so much going on at the moment? Uh, yeah, look, it is surprising, I guess, but I I really do think, I mean, 
with Western Australia being in this, I guess, little bubble, there's a there's a real high sense of, I guess, if you call it optimism out there, and people are, as I said, absolutely enjoying that freedom at the moment without having the restrictions. So people are going out there and spending money in restaurants. I mean, normally on Friday, Saturday nights, restaurants are full, but we're, we're, we're seeing restaurants full on, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night. So people are certainly enjoying, enjoying the moment where we're at at the moment in terms of Western Australia. Melbourne is reopening and we're starting to see a bit of a relaxation across the borders, across Australia. That must be a pretty exciting prospect for an industry that's, you know, trying to sell into those markets. Yeah, I, look, I think it's it's been and probably probably Melbourne to be a very similar situation to Western Australia. It's a very parochial state and obviously highly supportive of its own of its own wine producing region. So to be honest, I think there's a little bit of rebuilding to be had, I guess, on the East Coast in that we haven't been able to travel for, you know, for a good twelve months. So I think we're all itching, I guess, as producers to to get across there and I, I guess start re promoting our wines from Western Australia again. So yeah, look it certainly is, but I think you'll probably find that, you know, a lot of local producers are enjoying the moment in Western Australia. And I guess when restrictions open, borders open, then the first thing I think will be, will be is on, on planes to the East Coast again to, to Sydney and Melbourne to start promoting Western Australian wines or re-promoting Western Australian wines again. Ferngrove Wines Managing Director Andrew Blythe with Jessica Hayes and talking about that incredible support from Western Australians for the WA uh, wine producers drinking a lot of local wine, up 25% in fact. And interesting too to hear that the sales into China are still really steady as she goes, despite all the um, uh, frostiness, I guess, between China and Australia at the moment, the inquiry into the wine industry, two of those underway, uh, the barley tariffs, of course, and then the suspension of uh, beef from some of those abattoirs in the eastern states. Uh, despite all those concerns, though, the Chinese are interested in getting their hands on some WA seafood. The WA Fishing Industry Council says after months of uncertainty, there are now orders starting to roll in just ahead of Chinese New Year. The challenge, though, is going to be able to get the product to market with those limited air freight opportunities. Daryl Hockey is the CEO of WAFIC and says the Chinese New Year is always an important date on the WA seafood calendar and demand this year is as high as ever. Things seem to be stabilising, particularly out of Southeast Asia and, yeah, we're quite bullish about coming up Chinese New Year. Things have settled down and started to normalise a bit. Our average price is, is down down a bit, but we're starting to see um, some demand come back into the market. So it's not fully over, but the worst of it has passed. Would that be fair to say? It's not the train wreck I thought it was going to be. I mean, how does it stack up compared to what you thought it was going to be? Oh, we're, we're definitely still well down. I mean, pricing's 20% down on what we were expecting in our forecasts and on last year, but I think that's pretty much across the board on seafood products going into Southeast Asia. What about in terms um, of volume? Well, we, just, we made a decision to only harvest X amount of product and we found a home for all that going to Chinese New Year, which is good. But yeah, we, we made a decision to reduce our harvest for this coming financial year based on 
what we thought was maybe going to play out last year. So what we've done is deferred harvest, allowing some of the abalone to grow larger and, and be worth more in the future when we see pet pricing to return. But the harvest levels and targets that we did set have got a home. How much do you have your hopes pegged on Chinese New Year as a bit of a solution to some of these challenges that businesses like yours in the seafood industry are facing at the moment or have faced over the last 12 months? Yeah, well, we're seeing that Chinese demand play out now because the customers you know, start placing their orders for, for that time of year now. So, um, yeah, we're seeing, obviously seeing those orders. It's not falling off a cliff like we thought it would. So we're, we're pretty hopeful that this is going to be a, a pretty good Chinese New Year. And I think that, with, you know, the customer being cooped up for some time and all the challenges and that everyone else has had for the year, we're hopeful that they're going to get out and party like it's 2021 and never before. <laughs> and how have you had to change the way you do things in terms of operations? You mentioned there that you've left some product or produce left to grow for another year to to sort of increase in size how else have you had to change things to to sort of come out the other end of this you know we've 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 dropped some staff staffing levels we've taken pay cuts we've done all the things that we could and analyzed all our costs to reduce them as much as possible also taken advantage of all the generous government grants that were available and that's certainly been a savior for our business in the short term and and i, I can probably vouch for other businesses in the same boat that you know it was was an amazing response from government to assist business through that period in terms of forward planning how long are you guys banking on you know time passing before things start to look back to normal, back to the way they were prior to this whole crisis hitting? Or how long is a piece of string, I guess? Can you ask Mr Morrison that? <laughs> I really don't know. You know, it's just a guessing game at all times at this, at this point in time. But you kind of feel that things are getting a bit more normal, particularly here in WA and particularly in, in some of the Southeast Asian markets. We're not seeing, you know, the dramatic drop-off in demand and lockdowns that, and the fear that was there before. So, you know, I think people are learning to live with the way the world is right now and um, and just getting on with, with life. Have you seen any change to the dynamics in the domestic market in light of everything that's been going on? And I guess the fact yeah. that it's produced here in Western Australia and Western Australia seems to have managed to have ridden out the storm pretty well. Yeah, well, you'll see our, our latest quarterly been released that we've increased um, our percentage of sales into the domestic market. And we've also done some more marketing to ensure that we have more supply into the West Australian market, and that's been well received. How significant um, has that change been year on year? Uh, it was 20% increase. Wow. So that was good. As far as Australia generally goes, though, it was very reliant on Southeast Asian tourism, and that's not there, and so that demand hasn't returned. So until planes start flying and the tourists come back, the actual quantity of domestic market for abalone, and and I've spoken to other abalone suppliers and producers in Australia, all feel the same way until tourism comes back, particularly from the Southeast Asians. Demand within Australia will be soft. You would think that you know, most of the demand will be driven from us domestically, but it's actually driven by international tourism. Yeah, so what you lose on the swing you're picking up on the roundabout or the other mm. way around, I guess, in terms yeah, of the I fact guess, that you may yeah. be selling more in WA, but the, the nature of the market probably isn't Yeah, it's still, it's still quite small, so it's off a low base. Mm. Um, but you've got, to, you know, you've got to start somewhere, and, and we're hoping that the marketing program we've got in place for WA, we can roll out to other states as well um, once things start picking up, particularly in Victoria and New South Wales, where we were selling significant quantities previously, and hope that you know that will be a, a good, strong market again once the once the planes start flying. Just finally, what's happening with the 500 ton grow out facility and hatchery at Esperance? In Esperance, yeah. So we're still working on that. We we delayed some spending on there, but we're 
I was down in Esperance only last week, actually, and met with council again and, um, yeah, assured them that we're, we're still working towards building that facility and getting it funded and we're, we're quite excited about the future of, of that business going forward. Mm, I see you've spent, you know, 450 grand so far on, on mm. uh, development of that. Mm. Do and you we'll have a time... to spend funds on that. Yeah, do yeah. you have a timeline? Well, obviously COVID would have set that back a bit, but are, are you working on a revised timeline for when we might be able to expect some movement in that space? Yeah, well, we're hoping to get a feasibility done in the near future and then sometime in the next 12 to 18 months, pending an outcome of a successful feasibility and um, that we, we raise the funding that in 12 to 18 months we can start something down there. 25 past 12, WA Fishing Industry Council CEO Daryl Hockey with Jessica Hayes. Brad Adams is the Managing Director of Ocean Grove Abalone, which is based at Augusta, about three and a half hours south of Perth. He says the business has taken a major hit over the last 12 months, but is finally starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, g'day, Belinda. Um That is not Brad. I think I need to talk to Daryl. Hockey, don't I? Let's catch up with Daryl Hockey, who I introduced earlier. He's the CEO of Wafik, and he's talking about Chinese New Year, how it's always an important date on the WA seafood calendar, and demand is still just as high as ever this year. We've already had talks with some Chinese officials who are really keen on establishing new relationships for, with, with local buyers so that they can export into, into China over this, this coming new year. So we see that it's going to be a very strong demand. The, the amount of interest that's being shown by the Chinese is as good and healthy and strong as we've ever had. And that, they've got a particular demand for rock lobster and, and some of the shellfish species in particular. So we're seeing some strong demand. There's a lot of interest. We're, we're looking at um, some meet the buyer campaigns at the moment where we're, we're getting local suppliers hooked up with, with some of the importers in China. And we see that there's going to be quite a, quite a healthy demand over this summer. When we talk about Chinese New Year, in terms of volume and prices, when we, in a general sense, when we're looking across the board for WA seafood exporters, what are we expecting? Are we expecting the same sort of volume of exports as last year or what's the outlook? Well, it's very hard to answer in a general sense because some sectors are, have got as good a demand as they've ever had, while others have struggled a little bit. And, and there's a whole plethora of reasons. But one of the greatest difficulties that are faced at the moment is, is with the availability of air freight. And so there's only a limited amount. Some people in rock lobster industry have been able to charter their own flights, and that meant, that's meant they've been able to get a lot of volume out. But it's been a bit more difficult for some of the smaller suppliers to be able to get all of their product because sometimes they only get a very small allotment. It's in the belly cargo of you know what would have been passenger planes. Mm. You mentioned that some sectors are doing okay, others aren't doing as well. Which uh, can you break it down for me? Which sectors are doing doing well at the moment compared well, to those who well, aren't? Yeah, no, it's not just the sectors, it's also within sectors. It just, it's really the ones that have got the economy of scale and the ability to access um, air freight are the ones that are doing better than, you know, they're doing better than some of the smaller suppliers. So that would be things like rock lobster? 
Yeah, well, well rock lobsters are obviously, you know, our, our, our marquee export from from WA and particularly to the Chinese, the high-priced Chinese market. We've got to be able to get these products out there live and whole. And so, um, you know, in, in that respect, many people in, in the rock lobster industry are doing really quite well but some of them have still not been able to access the amount of freight that they require. Uh, When we look at the international markets how is the international recovery going given that things are looking pretty good domestically when we look at our overseas markets where are we sitting at the moment compared to a normal export period? We're always looking so we've got to be very agile and nimble that's what you need to do in international markets we're always looking for new marketing opportunities and we're looking into places like Singapore which distribute product right through Southeast Asia. We're looking at Taiwan and um, you know we've got our eyes on, on, on Middle Eastern markets as well. So we're always doing that. We're always laying the foundations for future markets. But at the moment, we're, we're reasonably comfortable about the way things are going. If we could just get some more air freight flights out, we'd, uh, we'd be a little bit happier though. Okay, so that is WA Fishing Industry Council CEO Daryl Hockey and just talking about Chinese New Year and the orders that are coming in for WA seafood, which um, demand seems to be as high as it ever has been. And earlier you heard from Brad Adams, who's the Managing Director of Ocean Grove Abalone, which is based in Augusta and talking about how it's been, you know, a pretty challenging last 12 months or so, but things are certainly starting to turn around, which is great to hear. This is The Country Hour. It's half past 12, and here's Garrett Mundy with an update from the newsroom. Good afternoon, Belinda. In the news this afternoon, a 39-year-old Perth woman has pleaded not guilty on the grounds of insanity to murdering her two young daughters. Milka Jurasevich was arrested in October last year after the bodies of her daughters, aged 10 and 6, were discovered at the family's Madeley home. She appeared in the Stirling Gardens Mag- Magistrate's Court this morning via video link from Bandiup Prison and has been committed to stand trial in the Supreme Court. The Prime Minister Scott Morrison says he's appalled by the treatment of a number of women at Doha's International Airport earlier this month. 13 Australian women were among travellers from 10 different aircraft subjected to internal examinations after a newborn baby was found in the terminal. The Qatari government's released a statement expressing regret for any distress caused by the inspections. And the family of a black man shot dead by police in the US city of Philadelphia has called for for an end to violent unrest on the streets. Looters are raiding stores on a second night of violence after Walter Wallace was shot dead when he refused to drop a knife. His family says he was experiencing a mental health episode. A full bulletin at one o'clock, Belinda. Garrett, thank you for that 29 to 1. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. And so good to have you along this afternoon. Still to come, between now and the news at one, off to Katanning for the results of the sheep market. Tracy Kilner will have those details for you. You will also learn all about Western Australia's first embryo export facility. How does that work? You will find out very shortly. And then it's off to Carnarvon to just get a sense and a bit of a handle on how the farmers in that part of Western Australia are dealing with the worker shortage as they have so many jobs to get done. First, it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Stephen McInerney with you this afternoon. Stephen, take us for a look around the Southwest Land Division. What do you see? Yeah, good afternoon. Look, uh, well, I guess really it's uh, fairly quiet actually today. Um, so, 
I mean, we might have had a little bit of light shower activity, well, light shower activity around the south coast, around Albany this morning. Uh, most of that's sort of cleared away, and kind of we get a, a ridge pushing underneath the well, south of the state pretty quickly tonight. And so by tomorrow, we've already got a yeah, trough developed off the west coast. So temperatures through the southwest are going to rise up pretty quickly. Um, so by, I suppose, tomorrow afternoon we could see a little bit of thunderstorm activity through northern parts of the central west district, uh, and that's going to extend further south on Friday. So that's going to push down through the southwest, maybe into uh, far northern parts of the uh, lower west district as well, maybe the adjacent areas of the uh, central wheat belt. Uh, and then during Saturday, I suppose we could see a little bit of shower activity Oh, I guess there is a front that will come through. It's fairly late um, in the day for the southwest of the state, but we could see a little bit of activity, I guess, uh, ahead of this system as it sort of uh, goes through during the afternoon, uh, evening period as well. So there is a chance you could see a little bit of thunderstorm activity through there. Uh, it's a bit uncertain as to whether that will uh, come off. So it's a bit fairly light, we'll say, at this point point but really the main feature will be that front that sort of comes up later in the afternoon evening period as well for that southwest pushes through and does stall I suppose through central parts of the southwest land division on Sunday and then we get a bit of a mid-level feature that develops behind that so potentially you could see on Sunday some reasonable falls along the west coast so you could see five to ten mils through those areas uh, yeah, as I said, during Sunday itself, potentially some thunderstorms uh, through southwestern districts as well. Uh, and then that mid-level feature sort of contracts eastward. So through the south, I suppose the southern and central parts of the southwest land division, we could see some showers and thunderstorms. But the heavier fall is more likely through eastern areas of the southwest land division, probably into the uh, goldfields in the Euclid district, where again you could see 5 to 10 mils, maybe up to 15, and isolated falls maybe potentially 25. But depending on where the system really does end up you could see those uh, heavier falls I guess pushing back uh, towards the southwest as well so they could push in towards the uh, Great Southern even into the south coastal districts as well uh, during Monday uh, and then conditions will start contracting eastward so we'll get to more of a uh, onshore flow showery type of scenario so uh, yeah showers sort of developing along the south coast during Tuesday so yeah look it is going to be a bit un uncertain as to uh, Sunday's Monday or Sunday Monday's uh, weather through the southwest uh, but yeah there could be some decent falls along the west coast and potentially through eastern parts of the southwest land division. And I guess it depends on where you're up to with your business, whether that rain's going to be welcome or more of uh, just a pain in the backside. So curious to know what it does mean for you. Can you text through and tell me? 0448 922 604. Because there'll be some, uh, Stephen, who will just love the sound of that and think they might get some runoff and top the dams up. But then, of course, other camps thinking they're trying to get those crops ready to mm. harvest. So uh, if you do have a story to tell about that rain, what might happen with that front and what's behind it, let me know on the text. 0448 922 Did you want to add something, Stephen? Well, I was going to say there's also, I suppose, the tricky part in that, I guess, the trough uh, developing up the West Coast. So, I mean, the temperatures will be pretty high as we get towards Friday. So, I mean, we are looking at... Uh, mid to high 30s through the west coast on Friday and then that trough will move inland on Saturday. So it is possible that during Saturday itself you could see some pretty high fire dangers uh, through the southwest land division, um, certainly through eastern areas ahead of that trough as that moves through in quite, I suppose, gusty conditions um, in those northerly winds. So those warm temperatures through there could be 
I suppose, well, in com- conjunction with the rain potentially the day after, um, yeah, it could be a bit tricky as to uh, how that really does affect the crops. Stephen, is it unusual or just normal for this time of the year, this sort of system we're looking at? Uh, I mean, level, I guess they do come through. I mean, this one does seem to have a little bit of rainfall with it. Now, I mean, there's always, I mean, we're still a few days out, so there's always a chance that the rainfall could back away. But, I mean, the model guidance is fairly consistent that you could see, you know, 5 to 10 mils, um, certainly for Sunday. I mean, a bit more undecided maybe on Monday, but... Yeah, it's, I guess, fairly unusual. I mean, usually we would see maybe a weak front sort of brushing along the south coast, but more likely those troughs moving through the southwest land division with the higher vintages. All right. Well, thank you for going through the details and obviously um, with our regular catch-ups with the bomb tomorrow and the next day we'll get, um, you know, any latest developments with that system. Northern and eastern parts then, Stephen, how's that looking? Yeah, look, it's, I guess, for the Kimberley, uh, fairly consistent. So, I mean, showers and thunderstorms are sort of kicking off right now and they've sort of extended into the north interior as well. Uh, So they should, I suppose, move in towards the uh, interior parts uh, of the Pilbara as well and maybe even extending into northern areas of the Gascoyne. So that's going to be continuing tomorrow. So generally those showers and thunderstorms extending from the Kimberley all the way through the Pilbara and into uh, inland parts of the Gascoyne. But they, they will end up somewhere around the Geraldton region, so they will push through those areas during tomorrow. Uh, As I said, for Friday, similar area again, so um, basically through the Kimberley and then through the interior areas of the Pilbara and the central areas of the Gascoyne. Maybe you can see maybe some isolated thunderstorms through the far northern areas of the goldfields over the next couple of days, but I mean they are going to be probably around about that where Luna and north of, so yeah, quite far northern parts of that uh, goldfields region. And then Saturday, Sunday, I guess the showers and thunderstorms potentially will uh, be more confined to the north on Saturday, but you could see a little bit of shower activity, I guess, through uh, inland parts of the Gascoyne gold fields as well. And then on Sunday, as that, I suppose, that mid-level feature starts to, I suppose, ramp up, we'll start seeing a bit more activity through uh, gold fields, Euclid District, and pushing in towards the interior as well as, I suppose, the Kimberley. So... I guess even for those areas, uh, Monday, maybe into Tuesday, would be, uh, I suppose, the the high risk of getting some um, decent falls, especially through the southeast of the state. Any warnings today? Yes, we do. So we do have a strong wind warning uh, for the west coast, so really for the uh, Ningaloo, Gascoyne, Gelton and the Eucla coast. And there's still a fire weather warning. So we do have catastrophic fire dangers for the Eucla district, uh, severe fire dangers for South Interior and also the Goldfields. Thank you very much for those details. Appreciate it. 21 to 1. And Richard Hudson here now with a look at the rainfall figures. Yeah, and wasn't it nice to hear him say there might be some rain, especially in the southeast of the state? But in the Kimberley is where the majority of our rain has been. Bedford Downs Airstrip 11, Drysdale River Station 7, Gibb River 6, Columbaroo 12. Lansdowne 5, Siddons Creek 11, Sophie Downs 10 and Warman topped it with 43. hope it's not warming up in that part of the world. No other rainfall worth reading out in the north and in eastern uh, forecast districts, but in the southwest land division forecast districts, lots of places in the southwest received one to three mils, but nothing above. The only ones worth reading out were in the lower west, and that's Carnot with eight and Pierce at the RAF base had five. Thank you for that, Richard. 20 to one. And between now and the news at one, off to Katanning just before the news and having a look at the yarding and the prices at the sheep market today.
And you would have heard in the last few months how worried some Australian farmers have been about the lack of workers available and around just to get the work done to harvest their crops. So many farms normally rely on backpackers to fill those seasonal picking jobs. But this year, as you know, due to the COVID travel restrictions, it's been almost impossible for some farms to get hold of enough travellers. James Liveris is in Carnarvon at the moment and has been catching up with some of the locals. James, how are the farmers coping? Yeah, g'day Belinda. Um, Yeah, it's no lie, worker shortages are a hot topic in the Gascoigne region. I've spoken to a vast amount of veggie and fruit growers and it seems they're trying to hang on to whatever they can get at the moment. Uh, The general sense is they'll hopefully scrape through. Uh, However, that's some of the smaller plantations that just rely on themselves or families of up to about four people just working huge hours trying to get the crop off. Um, It's the bigger plantations that have to mobilise staff of about 20 workers where it's looking a bit more precarious. Um, And that's looking into the next two to three months where they're going to try and hold on. But one thing's for sure, though, uh, moving into next year, uh, there's not going to be enough workers if nothing changes. So what's actually being picked at the moment that requires the most number of workers? Yeah, there's a few going on at the moment. We've got bananas that are all year. Uh, However... With the hot days coming up, um, the fruit will start to ripen a lot quicker, meaning the crop will need to come off as soon as possible. Uh, And I'm told Sweeter Banana Co-op will need a lot more workers in the packing sheds to make sure all the bananas go out. Um, Next off the ranks, there'd be table grapes that are about to hit the shelves. I was with Dom Condo yesterday, one of the biggest grape growers in the region. He's got his crew ready. Uh, He's hoping he'll just make it, but... He'll have to rely on a few backpackers floating through the area. That's pretty tough on the back, but uh, not too bad. There's also mangoes coming out, which is pretty intensive and sticky work. And what, from what I hear, the tomato packing sheds are also going like the clackers as well. But that's mostly just sorting, uh, not too backbreaking. And James, I'm really curious to know if any of the Carnarvon farms have managed to attract any of those workers from Perth through the Wander Out Yonder and Work in the Regions campaign? (laughs) Yeah, look, it's no easy task trying to get WA workers to come out to the farms. However, last night I did manage to chat to two 18-year-olds, Tess and Jack. Now, they live in the southwest, but they've come up to Carnarvon for an adventure and to earn some money in tomato packing sheds. It's really hot and sweaty in the shed. But uh, it's good work, it is. It's not hard either. It's hot, but it's good. And how long have you guys been working for? Uh, just a week so far. Jack has to lift all the like boxes, so that's like just over 10 kilos, and then I get the easier job of standing and sorting out like the rubbish tomatoes sort of thing. Yeah? Yeah, so Jack's got a worse spot. <laughs> and how many hours a day is it? Uh, it's not too bad. We start at six or seven, depending on how many tomatoes they got, so they tell you the night before. You finish around, what, two or three? Two or three. It's fully changed the way you see tomatoes. <laughs> it's like, that's when Tessa's going to sleep the other night. She, when she said, <laughs> when I shut my eyes, all I can see is tomatoes. <laughs> She's just looking at the tomatoes rolling past oh, yeah. all day long. Yeah, it's not a bad place for a working holiday for Tess Fritzen from Boyart Brook and Jack Goldsmith from Busselton. They're, they're little troopers, they are. That is so funny, isn't it, how they're now changing how they've seen tomatoes, seeing them in a whole new light. And good on them, a great adventure for those 
18-year-olds. And James, Carnarvon's mango picking season starts pretty soon, doesn't it? Is um, uh, the two of them, Tess and Jack, are they going to s- stick around for that? Uh, yeah, they are hoping so. Um, the mango season will kick off between late December to mid-January. And look, the growers are a bit mar- more worried in that situation. Uh, nothing has really been set in stone whether any workers are coming over from the Northern Territory yet. So I guess one thing to remember is the mango plantations are on a smaller scale here compared to other regions. They're on an average about five to 10 hectares. And also the crop forecast is looking below average um, due to poor flowering. So workers won't be too much of an issue, but yeah, I think they'll be trying to rely on rounding up a few pickers from the grapes and maybe some floating backpackers. And Carnarvon's also very famous for its bananas. How are the banana farmers coping? Have they got enough workers? What have you found out about that? Yeah, look, bananas, as I said before, all year round. So a lot of the bigger plantations can incentivise workers to stick around. Um, However, I caught up with John Kearney yesterday. Now, he's been growing bananas for 40 years and he does it himself, has about four hectares and that keeps him pretty busy. However, he says once these real hot days start to set in in the next few months, he definitely will need a helping hand because the bananas will ripen quicker than he can pick and, and he'll start to have a few get away from him and you never want any wastage. So, yeah, I think there will be a big call out for banana workers as well. James, thank you so much for taking us on a little tour around Carnarvon and just keeping an eye on the situation as far as those farms, those farmers being able to get enough workers this season. Thanks. No worries. Thanks, Belinda. That is rural reporter James Liveris, who is in Carnarvon and sharing his travels with you here on the Country Hour this afternoon, 14 to 1. Now, I want you to learn a little bit more about modern reproductive technology now. At some time in the future, a prize speckle park calf is going to be born in New Zealand. And the interesting thing about this calf is its sire lives in a stud in Canada, its mother on a stud in Jinjin, just north of Perth, and the three animals, so mum, dad and calf, will never meet in real life. Bovine vet Matt Carrick recently received accreditation to collect bovine embryos for export at his facility near Dongara, which is 350 kilometres north of Perth. He's been trying to get that very important piece of paper for the past three years, and his is the only facility of its kind in Western Australia and one of just a handful in the country. Lucinda Jose went along to see how the flushing and the lab actually works. We've always had commercial cattle in our family, so we've always bred them just for beef. And then we started researching purebreds when we bought our own property. And, yeah, we researched Angus, Mograys and a lot of other breeds. And we saw the Speckle Parks had one in Calgary for their carcass. And we thought we wanted more money from the butcher for the beef. So we started on the speckles. And how did you come to be selling embryos? So we imported a lot of embryos from Canada to start with because that's where the breed actually originated. And then when we started importing them, we went through the cull process of keeping sort of the top line and what we thought were our best cattle. And then people started asking us for embryos. So then we started distributing them now. So I was there when they did the flush 
How many embryos did you get? I think there was 34 in total that were exportable. And so what goes into making these potential babies happen? What do you have to do? Normally with the BOSVET program, it is a a. 6am, 6pm needle for seven days. And then you give them an artificial insemination. So the client can choose the bull or one of the bulls we have already imported or a homegrown bull. And then what happens is they'll inseminate the cow with that bull and then you wait, I think it's seven days, and then they'll actually have fertilised embryos inside, obviously more than one per cow, and then they'll flush those out and, yeah, they'll grade them under a microscope and then freeze each embryo individually. So where did the semen for these embryos come from? So these ones, we've imported the semen from Canada. It seems really futuristic. Did you ever expect to be sort of sourcing genetic material from Canada to join with your cows and then export them as well? No, and we're just really lucky that BOSVET has actually set up this facility because it's the only one in Western Australia. And, yeah, we're one of the first clients to be able to send exportable embryos out of Australia. So we never thought we'd come this far, but it's definitely been a lot of hard work to get here. Where will your embryos go? These ones are going to Mungahina Stud. It's in Masterton in New Zealand. Why embryos, Emily? Why not selling animals? Because we can't actually send a live animal to New Zealand without all the quarantine and they have different sorts of diseases and pests over there. And same as Western Australia. So we actually found our stud on embryos. So we've never actually purchased a live Speckle Park animal. We have always bought frozen genetics. So that's how we have built our start off frozen genetics. How much do the embryos fetch? Um, so yeah, looking anywhere from $800 to around 1500 it really depends on the cow. The exportable embryo is obviously a little more expensive and especially if we're sending them, the purchaser is the one that will pay the transportation fees. So when I buy, like Dad and I will choose sort of embryos from Canada and then when we import them we try and get around 25 at a time so it makes it feasible to bring it over but you're looking from $150 to $300 to import. And what does being able to export mean for your business? Uh, it just means that we've diversified a hell of a lot quicker than we ever thought we would. We sort of started this as we just wanted to have a small number of cattle in our own herd and we never really thought we would diversify that some international clients are seeking our genetics so it's very exciting for us and that was Jinjin Speckle Park stud manager Emily Trainer with Lucinda Jose now I want you to learn more about how this flushing and the lab actually works because Lucinda Jose did go along to see how it is and I know that you want to get an insight into that so this is how it works Matt, what are you doing today? Uh, we are flushing some cows, which is removing their embryos for export to New Zealand. Uh, we're generally doing this weekly at this time of the year. But the export part is new. Yeah, so the facility's only recently gained export accreditation and this is the second time we're undertaking it for export. Now, it's quite an interesting process. How many embryos are you hoping that you might get today? 20 a cow would be lovely. A average is sort of around about six or seven a cow for good, freezable embryos. I'm scanning her ovary, or her right ovary at the moment, the ultrasound, 
and I'm trying to count the numbers of structures which would give you an idea of how many eggs have been released from this cycle, this cow. Something I'm not very good at doing whilst talking, <laughs> it turns out. I'll give you a moment to do it. <laughs> so this is a 17-day process, and they get a regime of hormones that both synchronise them together, so they're all happening at the same time, and also um, we give them some hormones that means that each cycle a cow will produce numerous eggs, but normally one follicles that eggs are released from, one becomes dominant and the others die off. So we give them some hormones that keep the, all of them, or as many as we can, viable out of that particular cycle. Have you done this with this particular cow before? Uh, several times with this particular cow, yeah. She's uh, quite a cow, so her genetics are, are quite in demand. Yeah. We won't put too much expectation on her to produce today, though. So I'm a breeding technician, so I work alongside the vet, pretty much doing every job that he can't do while he's tied up in a cow. So what are you doing now? So my role is to feed the syringes to the vet so he can flush the fluid into the cow and then retrieve it back. Once he's retrieved it back, ideally the syringe is full of embryos and I then feed it through a filter system so all the excess fluid drains away and we're left with a small amount of fluid in the cup that then goes into the lab and gets searched under a microscope. So ideally the least amount of fluid in the filter cup is ideal, so it's less searching under a microscope, but hopefully all the embryos are sitting in there at the bottom. So obviously these embryos are tiny and we can't see them with our naked eye, but it's like a little bit of bubbles in there. Yeah, so the tiny little specks in there floating around somewhere. And we really just try to keep that as clean and sterile as possible. All the gear is all labelled per cow, so there's never a crossover between different animals. So I've just left Matt flushing the cows and come back out of the dirty side of the export facility where I keep the animals and all the poo. And take off my overalls, change my shoes and go and have a look in the lab. My name's Nicole and I'm an embryo technician. So I've had one look and we've got six good eggs ready to freeze, but I give the dish three searches with half an hour spacing between because there's quite a lot of you know, microscopic debris and cells and stuff in there, so I don't like to just have one look. They look like tiny, weeny little... Just specks of dust. dust. And you can only see that much of them in a certain light. Can I have a look through the microscope? Absolutely. Oh, okay. So to do your focus, just use that little knob at the back there. Oh, wow. So now they're just having their wash and they're all just holding their medias until I've finished my third search on that dish. And then from there they'll get transferred into our freeze media. And once they're in there, I load them into little straws and then they are put into the freeze machine. And then once they get to negative 34, I then plunge them in liquid nitrogen and that's where they live. And how long do they store for in liquid nitrogen? Forever. Wow. They're really suspended in animation. It's just, they're frozen in time. Matt, where will those embryos go? These will be going to New Zealand to a place they've been sold to over there. 
And how much are they worth each, these little gems? can't tell you exactly what these ones are worth. It's, I don't do the, the marketing for the client or anything. That's, that's their game. But I'd, I'd imagine these would be somewhere between $1,500 to $6,000 in embryo. Most in the market, Lucinda for across breeds would be somewhere between $800 and $2,000 would cover most. But there's some exceptional ones that are obviously worth a lot, lot more. Bovine vet Matt Carrick, breeding technician Billy Mar- Marshall and embryo technician Nicole Robson talking to Lucinda Josen. Earlier you heard from Emily Trainer, the Jinjin Speckle Park stud manager, who's pretty excited about the business opportunity. Three and a half to one here on the Country Hour. Off to the markets now and sheep numbers were up about 530 at Katanning today. The final figure was 5,926 sheep and lambs. Tracy Kilner's at the sale yards. And Tracy, can you run through the results today? The yarding was dominated by mature sheep. Heavy new season lambs sold to a top of $156.00. Heavy used to $163 and a pen of Merino Weathers topped the sale at $173 a head. Store lambs gained on last week with demand and graziers were chasing young Merino ewes. The new season lightweight lambs sold from $30 to $79 to restocker and feeder buyers. New season lambs, including Merino, saw air freight weights under 16 kilos carcass weight, sell from 90 to 119 to processors and from 70 to 115 to restocker and feeder buyers. The heavier under 18 kilos carcass weight lambs made from 115 to 135 and 119 to feeder buyers. Trade weight lambs sold for 132 to 155 and the heavyweight lambs returned 145 to $156 to processors. Young Merino ewes sold to processors for $70 to $130, while restockers paid $60 to $130 a head. Mutton prices gained on most categories, with only store ewes easing in price. The heavy ewes over 24 kilos carcass weight sold from $120 to $163. Medium weight ewes made from $95 to $123 to processors, and up to $155 with a fleece to restockers. Bonus sold from $85 to $138. Lightweight use eased, selling for $50 to $100 carrying a fleece to processors, while restockers paid from $90 to $128 for store lines. Mature weathers sold from $160 to $173 for the heavyweights. Medium weights made from $100 to $160. And lighter weights sold from $110 to $121 a head. Young hogger weathers returned $101 to $146 for the heavier weights and stores and lightweights sold from $45 to $99 a head. A large run of rams on offer saw prices ease, with heavy younger rams selling to processors from $50 to $95. Mature and store rams returned $10 to $40 a head. Ram lambs made from $40 to $110 depending on weights. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you, Tracy. And just before the news, the Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association is welcoming the federal government's decision to delay a new regulation that would have reduced the number of cattle allowed on export ships. As you heard yesterday, the Agriculture Minister David Littleproud says exporters will now have the next six months to prove they can maintain 
current stocking numbers. The KPCA chair, David Stoat, says this is great news for the industry and animal welfare, but the RSPCA is not so happy. Jed Goodfellow says stakeholders has been working hard behind the scenes for two years with multiple consultations to secure some modern, uh, modest changes, but at the 11th hour, Minister Littleproud has stepped in to undermine the agreed improvements. News time, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.